I have an uncle who would always tell me there's two types of people. The people who need to touch the stove to find out it's hot or those that believe you when you tell them that the stove is hot. And so I've always been the latter. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to the wildly successful young architect, Jermaine Barnes. His award-winning practice, Studio Barnes, examines, through historical research and design speculation, the connection between architecture and identity, architecture's social and political agency, and the built environment's influence on Black domesticity. He's also an associate professor and the director of the Community Housing and Identity Lab at the University of Miami School of Architecture. He received his bachelor's in architecture from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and his master's from Woodbury University, where he was awarded the thesis prize for his project, Symbiotic Territories, Architectural Investigations of Race, Identity, and Community. And he's pretty much been on a well-deserved winning streak ever since. He was awarded a Graham Foundation grant for his project, Sacred Stoops, Typological Studies of Black Congregational Spaces, which is an investigation of the porch and its role in African-American community. He was included in a major exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art. That same year, he also won the very prestigious Rome Prize, the Harvard GSD Wheelwright Prize, and a United States Artist Fellowship. And this month, his work is in the Venice Architecture Biennale. It was fascinating to learn just how much his architecture practice is informed by the skills he honed on the basketball court. And the whole story plays out like one of the most exciting games you'll ever witness. Here's Jermaine. My name is Jermaine David Barnes. I live in Miami, Florida, where I have a practice named Studio Barnes, which is design and architecture focused. And the reason I do what I do is because, one, I'm not a fan of reading. So most jobs that involve reading and writing were not on my radar. And second, because I would like to leave a lasting impact on the built environment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You grew up in Chicago on the west side? Yes, yes. In the city of Chicago. Like a lot of people like to say they're from Chicago and you find out they're from a suburb. Like, no, I'm from the actual city. Talk to me about your childhood. What kinds of things made an impression on your young brain? What was your family dynamic like? It's interesting because I've only ever wanted to be an architect, but I never met any architects. I don't know where it sort of came from. One of my earliest memories that my mom loves to regurgitate anytime she meets new people. 
is when he was six, he was with his cousins and they were doing a what I'm going to be when I grow up type exercise at, at his aunt's house. And Jermaine said that he's going to be in the NBA and be an architect at the same time. And so I always say, like, obviously, that basketball thing never came to fruition, but the architect thing did this 31 years later. So six to 37 and architecture is still there. So it's very, very um, peculiar that I never met an architect, didn't really know what architects did. I don't even know where I heard the word before, but by six, I was able to say I'm going to be an architect. That is wild. Yeah, it's weird. I don't want to leave the basketball piece alone because I'm assuming you did play growing up. Yeah, I played all the way through varsity, four-year letterman, got to time for college. And my coach was like, hey, do you want to play in school? And I was like, hey, man, you and I both know I'm not going to the NBA or anything. So I'm smart enough to have a scholarship for this design stuff. So I'm just go ahead and focus on that. And I'll still play basketball. So you'll catch me at the Wellness Center at the University of Miami, where I teach playing basketball like two or three days a week with a bunch of students and stuff because I'm still in pretty good shape. But (laughs) I love (laughs) it. Stop there. I'm interested in if you can draw any parallels to basketball and architecture. Oh, absolutely. Spell that out for me. I'm I'm super interested in how sports and design overlap. And I think it's something that people don't think about enough, but it's really, really related. I tell people all the time, I wouldn't be this successful in architecture if I didn't have so many years of basketball experience. It would not happen. I believe you. Unpack that a little bit. Why do you think basketball supported you in architecture? Sports in general, if you play it at a very competitive level, it forces you to learn discipline. Like, like you don't have a choice. If you care about this and you love this and you want playing time and you want success, then you have to sacrifice a lot. And it builds up a competitiveness that sort of becomes and defines you. And so for me, from playing organized basketball from fifth grade until my senior year of high school, 11, 12 years, sometimes playing on two or three teams at one time, like having to travel to Wisconsin for a game and then come back, you learn very quickly time management. You learn very quickly priorities. You learn very quickly oh, I have to outwork that other person because while I'm here goofing around, they're probably in the gym putting up 500 shots and I'm not. So when it came time to studio culture, oh, you think you're going to make 10 models, I'll make 15 or you're going to make eight drawings, I'll make 12. It's never running from the competitiveness of it. So I remember when I was in graduate school, there was a a young man named Wallace Fang and Wallace is like the greatest hand model maker I've ever seen in my life. And at the time, I wasn't very good at making models by hand. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to sit next to Wallace because he's going to push me. And so sitting next to him and watching all stuff, I need to be in here working more. And so these are things that I developed playing sports. And I think the biggest way that it helped me was when it came to critiques and reviews, which we know can be crippling to a person's confidence. Because a lot of times you have a series of your peers or people you admire they're essentially telling you how either this is the greatest project of all time or the worst project of all time. There's rarely anything in the middle. And most of the time they're telling you it's the worst thing that you've ever seen before. And I've seen a lot of students crumble like under that pressure. Meanwhile, I'm thinking this is nothing compared to a basketball game I've had. Like all you can do is tell me this project isn't good. If I go miss that defensive assignment, we might lose the game. Or if I turn the ball over, like I might not get back in for the next two quarters. So I was always able to put things in perspective that way because of sports. And then I think the other thing it affords me is the ability to communicate with people. So the position I played in basketball was point guard, which is essentially the leader on the court. Think of it as the coach makes the plays and the the point guard makes sure that everybody knows their roles where they're supposed to be. 
that sounds like an architect to me that's leading a bunch of consultants of saying, you do this, you do this, you do that. And understanding how to communicate with those people, because with some players, I knew I can yell and they play better. Others, I knew I had to give them a pat on the back would be very encouraging and they'll play better. And so all these things have helped me as an educator and as a, as a professional. I see it. I believe it. And I also want to ask you about just as while we're on this topic, it would seem to me that you would have to learn a lot of like sort of fast decision making, a, a lot of like very feel your way, understand the flow kind of you know the game so well, you can kind of see three steps ahead and how things are going to go. So you make these sort of on the fly decisions. Has that helped you in terms of being flexible and adaptable in, in your work? Absolutely. I think one of the, the best compliments I typically get from colleagues or fabricators that I work with, even if it's the first time, it's you're very easy to work with. And that goes back to me knowing like I can't be stiff. Like I have to be able to change because if I'm playing a game and this person starts making every single shot, we got to be willing to change. If we don't change up the scheme, we'll lose this game. So when I'm doing real work, if somebody says, well, Jermaine, the drawing we originally sent you is not representative of what's here in the space. Is that okay? I can't be like, no, I was planning for this one thing you sent me. And now it's this other thing. It's too late to change. My thought is, okay, let's, let's shift. Here's how we do this thing. Let's keep going. And then we move on from there. And that also demonstrates a kind of respect and understanding for the rest of the team. Like in this case, the trade laborers and the people who are on site. And when you respect what they have to do and what their role is in the whole game, and you're playing to support them in terms of their strengths and your strengths, that seems like a much more fluid and collaborative kind of arrangement. A lot of times we hear of so much contentiousness between, let's say, the creative class and the trade. That really frustrates me. But it sounds like you've got a nice dynamic going. Well, absolutely. I mean, everything that we do, we put everybody's name on it. So any, anytime I win an award or a project gets a lot of notoriety, I'm, I'm, I'm always sure to say, well, this is who built it. Don't think I did it. We just designed it. Or here's the teammates that did it. Because again, it goes back to my theory in sports where it's like, if I'm playing with four other people and we go eight possessions and one guy never gets the ball, he's doing all this hard work that's going unseen. He's just looking at us like, why aren't you guys passing it to me? He's going to stop working hard. He's going to stop caring. And the next thing you know, you lose the game because he's like, well, you didn't care about me. So why should I care about the team? And so I keep these same ideals. And the funny thing is when I'm playing basketball, sometimes my teammates are like, why are you passing him the ball? He's terrible. I'm like, because he's doing all the stuff you don't want to do. If I don't give him the ball a few times, he's going to stop doing those things and then we're going to lose. And so when it comes to the real building, it's like, why are you putting their names on it? They didn't have anything to do with the concept, et cetera. I'm like, because they built it. If they didn't build it, we would have had to do it. And if we had to do it, it would not have been this clean. As <laughs> them. So then what's, what's the problem? This is definitely things that have, have definitely paired together. That's keeping the big picture in mind. And that's also understanding... Not only the team dynamic, but pride in someone's work is actually a key piece of the intention of the of the built work. And if you put love into designing the concept and the intention behind it, then you want it to be built with love, too. So that means everybody's got to be respecting each other. Absolutely. You knew you wanted to be an architect from six years old without any sort of role model for that. How did that grow and foster in your brain? Did you start seeking out examples of architecture? No. I mean, 
No? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was just this abstract concept? Yeah. <laughs> so I said, it's like stories like these are, are ones that make you believe in serendipity and destiny. But that's yeah. like, right? It's, yeah. like, it's, just, it's just so bizarre. It was like a sign to you before you were born. And you're like, okay. <laughs> no, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you. So it's going to be even more crazy when I say a couple more things that, that actually sort of work together, Amy. And that's that. No, I want to be an architect at six. I have an older cousin. Uh, my older cousin is really good at sketching, really good at like drawing cartoon characters and things. And there was a, a manga called Dragon Ball Z that used to come out when we were younger. It's still out today, but it originally came out when we were much younger. He would draw the characters all the time. And in my affinity for wanting to be like my older cousin, I would just start drawing them too. So I'm drawing all these things. But again, never a building. I don't think I ever drew a building until the seventh grade. And the reason why I said until the seventh grade is because the elementary school that I went to, Seventh grade year, you do a class diorama project, seven and eighth graders. That year, the eighth graders had the Amazon rainforest and they did this whole installation in our hallway on the third floor. A seventh graders were on the second floor. And so we did Frank Wally Wright as ours. And so every single student got put into pairs and you had to build like a small model of a Frank Wally Wright home that was given from the list. And so I picked the Guggenheim Museum, me and my friend Pedro. So we built a model of the Guggenheim when I was in the seventh grade. But where it really gets trippy is we did a field trip to Frank Lloyd Wright's home in Oak Park. Because, you know, you're in Chicago, you have very good access to it. So as we're driving down the street on the yellow school bus, I see my house. And I'm like, why are we by my home? Then we go a little bit further. And I'm like, I play in that park. Where are we? Come to find out the park I played in as a kid is directly across the street from Frank Lloyd Wright's home. No way! Literally across the street. So this entire time, I'm literally just being a kid running around playing and stuff, not knowing I'm literally across the street from Frank Lloyd Wright's home. Go inside. I come home to mom like, Ma, you know the park that we play in all the time? You know it's across the street from Frank Lloyd Wright's home? And she's like, never knew that. And then we realized there's plaques all over the place. There's street signs and things and just sort of just all sort of melds together. It's just sort of insane, <laughs> sort of insane thing that, again, I don't know how all this stuff happens. Just to get even more meta, that's an example of how the built environment seeps into your subconscious and has an impact on the world around you. And if we design the built environment for the world we want to see, then we can make it a reality. It was just so insane. There's a restaurant down the street from there called Giordano's. It's a like famous Chicago pizza place. And we would go there a lot. And then when I was in like from three to five, I have one of those parents that just puts you in everything. It's like, I'm going to find ways to keep you busy. So you never get a chance to just sit down and do nothing. So I never had any free time. And from three to maybe like three to five, I did tap dance and ballet and all that kind of stuff as a kid. And that was on the exact same street as the park, as Frank Roy's Riot's house, et cetera. You just take that one street all the way down. And so I don't know how many times I probably made that drive, not realizing what I was seeing, but me and my older siblings will play this game of that's my house. And you like, you see a very nice house. You put the window. That's my house. Like it's the first one, the quickest one to see the biggest, most glamorous, beautiful sort of object. You get to claim it. And if you say it before somebody else, then it's yours. There are a lot of very beautiful homes in Oak Park that you see that make you really want to say, I wish that was my house as you're, as you're driving past. Wow. That is serendipity. Seventh grade, you're realizing you played across the street from a Frank Lloyd Wright house. When you were doing this project and going on this field trip, was it clicking for you? Were you also getting more inspired by architecture and you were thinking, oh, yeah, this is why I want to do it? Or was it like, this is not what I thought it was going to be? 
it was probably more reinforcement. It's funny. This is maybe like five or six years ago because I'm still in touch with Pedro, the guy from kindergarten, because we went to kindergarten through eighth grade together. Then we went to high school together. So still, still inexplicably linked <laughs> all these, all these years later. I think I posted something on my Instagram page and he sent me a DM and he said, dude, you've been talking about this since we were six. And I, and I was like, it's crazy that you still remember that, that like this literally is the only thing I've ever wanted to do. So sometimes people like doubt the veracity of my story. I'm like, nah, man, this is the honest truth. <laughs> like there's never been anything else. I mean, obviously there was the basketball aspect, but aside from that, there's never anything else I wanted to do. Man, that was not me. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had to go the circuitous route. But talk to me about your teenage years. If you're already sort of on the path to architecture, you're playing basketball, and that's still a big piece of your life. Where did your teenage angst and growing pains fit in? And like, what did they look like for you specifically in terms of you finding your adult identity? I can honestly say I'm lucky and my sisters would tell you they hate this about me that I never had the awkward phase. <laughs> like <laughs> I never had the awkward phase. That is not fair. <laughs> yeah. They will, they will, they will tell you they hate it physically. I never went through it. Like I have the exact same face I've had since I was a kid, just minus a mustache and a beard. So like I never actually went through the awkward phase and they used to hate that about me. It's like you're all, you're good at everything. The moment you grab something, you just, you just catch on. I think it's just like a dexterity, but I tell them all the time that it's because I'm the youngest. Like I was able to learn from them. And I have an uncle who would always tell me there's two types of people, the people who need to touch the stove to find out it's hot or those that believe you when you tell them that the stove is hot. And so I've always been the latter in that, okay, clearly I think you care about me. So why would I think you're going to give me bad advice? So you tell me not to do these things. I'm just not going to do them. You tell me to do these other things. I'll just do them. So if you tell me work hard, okay, cool. I'll work hard. If you tell me don't go to that neighborhood, okay, I won't go to that neighborhood. Like I don't need to be like Simba. And go run and see if what dad tells me is true or not. Now, some people tell you that's a difficult way to live because you might miss out on amazing opportunities because somebody else might have fear and they put that fear on you. And it may be true, but I think more times than not, it's somebody that cares about my well-being. They want that for me. So my high school years were super easy. I went to one of those high schools that like it seems like you're in movies, like you see it in TV. And it's like high school is really not like that. My high school, my high school was really like that. It was Walter Payton College Prep. We were the first class admitted. So it was only us as freshmen. So I don't know what it was like to have upperclassmen. So again, no awkward phase. There was nobody older than us. It was just us. Then my sophomore year, it was us and a new freshman. Junior year, us, the sophomore. Right, so you were always freshmen. on top of the yeah, deck. <laughs> never knew what it was. I never knew what it was like. So in the high school I went to was extremely well resourced, which goes to a lot of bad issues about Chicago public schools in that it's public, but it's selective enrollment. So we had a planetarium in our building. Everybody got their own laptop. We had off-campus lunch. We had Thursdays where you can play ping pong instead of going to class. Like that was the kind of school that I went to. So I'm getting this amazing education, which is all reinforcing my desire to go into artistic fields. We have tons of art classes. I'm taking all of them because we have access to them. Like I take photography at the Art Institute of Chicago as a elective course. I'm taking drawing and painting. I'm doing all these things best because at that point I knew that some of the best architects in history had been painters and artists before they became architects. And I was like, well, that's what they did. That's what I'll do. Similar to a basketball. I was like, all right, if this person trained and watched this tape, I'm going to do the same thing as that person. So I mimic a lot of the things I saw from the quote unquote greats as the way they get. And I did the same thing. And so the first job I ever had was actually as a painter painting murals uh, for the library in my neighborhood. 
Oh, really? Yeah, it was uh, for the Mayor Daly's Kid Start program. It was this way to get 14 and 15 year olds work permits where they like you're getting paid, but you're not really having a real job. And mine was doing painting. So I spent the entire summer at Austin High School just learning to paint and then painting and doing a mural at the end for the local library. I got paid for it. Like that was my first ever job. And were you doing it with a team of people? So it was like collaborative as well? Yeah, it was like eight or nine of us high school kids. Some of them went to that high school, Austin High School. Some of them from the neighborhood. I was from the neighborhood, but I didn't go to that high school. Uh, My high school was like 45 minutes away. So we all were like learning together. And a lot of people, everybody could draw. But a lot of people didn't know like technical skills. Again, remember, I'm I'm just copying my older older cousin. I'm not like getting formal training. I don't know if you remember these things, but like the scholastic book club things that you do, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you used to have like the pamphlets, like how to draw a superhero. How do I say? So I just, I used to get all those books. So I was very fortunate to have parents who have money and were able to buy these things for me. And as a kid, like any how to draw thing, I had them all. But it was like self-taught as opposed to me having an instructor. I think this is interesting because you're in a profession that requires a lot of critical thinking. And yet you're describing a childhood where you at least had a lot of trustworthy role models in your life where you didn't have to question the kind of information that was coming your way. You could just kind of absorb it and sort of move forward because you didn't have to learn the hard way on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Well, I learned my artistic skills while you were painting murals. I was perfecting the curly cue on the top of my Dairy Queen ice cream cones and (laughs) (laughs) getting the banana splits just perfectly symmetrical. (laughs) Gotcha. I did have those types of jobs too, but it started with painting and then became other stuff. So architecture was never in question. How did you decide on your college trajectory? Like where you wanted to go to school and where you wanted to study? That was a series of unfortunate events. This is where we start to hit a bit of a a few roadblocks. Everything is everything's super easy at this point, just to be totally honest. Everything's super easy. Now I'm in my junior year of high school. We're taking the PSATs, which everybody takes in, in the U.S. And I'm getting top five percentile and everything. So every single school is writing and saying, hey, you should come here. So I'm getting letters from Princeton. I'm getting letters from Yale. I got accepted into some Stanford program during the summertime, which if you accepted this offer, you automatically get into Stanford as a freshman when you come. And my mom always taught me, my mom and dad, that the summers were mine. I didn't have to do work during the summers so long as I performed during the school year. So when I saw the letter from Stanford, I was like, you think I'm giving up my summer to go like be a student? Like You're insane. That's not happening. So I keep on going. But then one day I come home and one of my older sisters is there and she was attending Howard University in D.C., historically black college. And that's when we found out she had cancer. Oh. We found out she had cancer. She had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She told me about it. I was distraught. And I'm taking AP courses at my high school. And the AP courses are first thing in the morning at seven to eight and then eight until nine a.m. When she was there, I would go to the hospital every single night to sit and hang with her because she just hated being there. She's not enjoying that at all, but, you know, I'm trying to be there for her and be supportive. The nurses knew me on a first name basis. You're not supposed to be there if you're not the parent. And I'm not even 18, but they're like, nah, it's just your man. He's all, he's all right. Like he can get her to eat because she wouldn't want to eat stuff because it's hospital food. But I'd be there so late in the day that it would make me sleepy before class in the morning. So my grades started to go down a little bit, but not to a point where it affected where I would get into school. But at this point, she's not getting better. So the chemo is just sustaining. It's not removing the cancer. So I make the decision, I'm not going to apply to the schools I actually want to go to. I'm just either going to go to Howard University or I'm going to go to University of Illinois. So just so I can be with her in either scenario. I end up going to University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. 
It's a great school. Yeah, for architecture. Absolutely. So it wasn't like there were bad choices, but like I had dreams of going to Syracuse for some reason. Because, like, again, I loved basketball. They had, the Orange Men was a great team and they had a great architecture program. I was like, look, I can pair these two things together. My mom wanted me to go to Princeton because they took her out to dinner, like literally recruited my parents. Like, we'll take you out to dinner. We have basketball here. Your son can play basketball and he can study architecture. And I was like, Ma, I don't fit in at Princeton. Like, I don't think this will work. And she's like, but it's Princeton. I'm like, yeah, but does it fit my personality? You're so self-aware for, for a young man. I just, I just knew it wasn't it. This is the end of August. I have what we call a trunk party. So in our, in our community, black community, before you go off to college, you have these sort of parties that everybody comes and buys you things. So when you go to start your first day of college, you have everything you need. I'm fortunate enough to have, again, financial privilege that my parents, they need to do this. But you have cousins and aunts that just want to contribute in some type of way. So we have one anyway. That was the last time I saw my sister. So we're at the trunk party. This is maybe two weeks before I'm supposed to move in for school. I still have the picture on my phone. I will never delete it. And then school started September 5th because it's the day after Labor Day at University of Illinois. And then three days later, I get a call from my dad on the 9th of September, 2004. And he said, your sister didn't make it. And then all hell broke loose after that. Jermaine, I didn't know this about your life. I'm so sorry. I can talk about it now, but at the time, not good. So everything was super easy until that point. And then... A year later, one of my best friends who I'd known since I was in elementary school, he's only two days younger than me. I'm November 16th. He's November 18th. He was murdered. All of the easy things I had experienced for myself began to sort of unravel for those around me. And it really made me question a lot of things. Thank you for sharing that. It makes me want to ask you what kind of questioning followed that and how did the grief play out in your life? In the worst way possible. I got kicked out of school. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, 
follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So I went from one of the brightest kids you can imagine, smiling, happy, can hang with anyone, one of the jocks, but also one of the nerds and that gets everything. And so it was never an issue to like do anything. And like I mentioned, everything just came easy to me. It's like, oh, okay, I got it. I can figure that out. Okay, I got it. I can figure that out. But then when that happened, I was like, I don't know why this is happening. Like my sister is amazing. Why was she taken from me? Like my friend, his brother was the problem. He was unfortunately killed because of his brother. So I'm like, like, why do these things keep happening? So at that point, I'm just like, clearly none of this stuff matters. Because no matter how good you are, everything can be taken like immediately. So I just stopped caring about school. I was like, you know what? I'll just go take my architecture studio courses because I'm going to be an architect. I saw enough times on TV that C's get degrees. I'm like, clearly these grades don't matter. I'm going to just do what I got to do. I'll get this class. Screw the rest of them. Nobody told me that if you have two consecutive semesters under a 2.25, in the school of architecture, you get kicked out of school. So if I were a gen ed major or some liberal arts major 
or kinesiology or something like that, 2.0s would have been fine. But in my college, 2.25 was the minimum. Didn't know. Nobody told me. So I had back-to-back semesters of a 2.0. And the next thing I know, I get a letter in the mail that says, Jermaine, you've been removed from the School of Architecture. One of the weird things about University of Illinois is at the time, they used to do this, this special orientation for students of color. It was like you're coming to a predominantly white institution. There'll be 40,000 students. You need to know what resources you have. So here are some of the cultural homes. So the African-American house, the indigenous house. These are literal houses that we have that are like led by these various ethnicities. And so I was there for that. And when you're there, you get paired with a mentor and you get paired with an advisor. The tough thing about design, as you know, not a lot of people that look like me. So we had zero mentors that were in the School of Fine and Applied Arts. That's landscape architecture, industrial design, urban planning, and architecture. So four different disciplines, not one black mentor. So when it came time to me, they were like, sorry, Jermaine, we can't actually pair you with anybody because we don't have anyone that represents those disciplines. So I had the same advisor the entire school of architecture had, and that person didn't really care. Like they didn't have time. So there was nobody I could actually talk to. And there was no black TAs. There was no black professors or anything. So when all this stuff is happening, these crises are happening with my sister and my friend. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm just going to class every day. And this is where the grief thing comes in. I'm just mad every single day. I'm mad at everybody. And my parents are seeing it. I'm rude to my dad. I'm rude to my mom, which are things I never do. And at one point, my mom just snaps. She's just like, you have to go to therapy because she's like she sees the letter saying that I'm kicked out of school. She sees I'm happy. She's like, I know you're sad that he took your sister. Like, I know you are. Like, but God has a reason for why this happened. Not to turn this into like a religious thing, but she's like, you need to talk to someone. So I go to my counselor and my counselor's like, why didn't you tell us this was going on? I'm like, who am I supposed to talk to? Right. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to talk to. They're like, well, if you go to counseling and if you retake these classes over the summer, we'll readmit you into the school in the fall. So it actually didn't interrupt my ability to finish in time. But I had to go to counseling. I go to counseling, like one of the longest, biggest cries I ever had in my life where just like everything just like came out. And the therapist was just like, how long have you been holding on to this? I'm like, probably way too long. After that happened, go retake the courses, do fine, back admitted into the school. From that point forward, I'm dean's list every semester because now I don't have this stuff on my shoulders anymore. But those two semesters wrecked my GPA. So now when it's time for graduate school, who doesn't look like a good candidate? Me, the kid who amazing student his entire life, except for this one year when all these crappy things happen. And I wasn't comfortable writing about it to graduate schools and telling people my personal business about they're just looking at my GPA and thinking like, oh, this kid can't hang or he's not talented enough, not knowing the circumstances. And I got rejected from all the graduate schools I applied to my first go around. It was tough. I'm happy to hear about that big, long cry. I'm a fan of them. I do think they cleanse your system. And it sounds like your faith was shaken and your faith in whatever you believe in. Absolutely. Having a catharsis is is one piece of processing the grief, but like rebuilding your faith is another part of it. And did that happen for you? Is it still happening for you? Is it an ongoing maintenance project? Or it's definitely what? an ongoing maintenance project. It definitely was shaking quite a bit. Like I was questioning everything at that point and things started to come back around. Um, and this is someone that's from a family that's like super, super, super religious and like Southern Baptist because mom's from Arkansas, dad's side's from Mississippi. So it's like super ingrained in the culture. But I'm questioning everything now. And I'm like, why? This doesn't make sense. Why? Go through the therapy portions. And now at this point, 
I'm not getting into any grad schools. And it's 2008, which is height of the recession. So now I'm like, this is some sort of perverted twist that I picked the thing I've only ever wanted to do. And this is the worst time to graduate with a degree in architecture. So this is when I ended up moving to Cape Town. So I moved to Cape Town because I came across this internship opportunity through our career services department at the University of Illinois. And when I go through there, I tell my parents, I'm like, hey, I have an opportunity to go get a job in Cape Town, but it's unpaid because, again, architecture stuff, most internships are unpaid, unfortunately. Um, like, so you guys have to pay for my rent. You have to give me money to spend and I'll be there for like three or four months. My parents are like, will this actually help you? Like, will this help you in your career? I'm like, absolutely. And they're like, all right, then we'll pay for it. Again, economic privilege. So definitely not lost on me. And while this is happening, I'm getting ready for this. I'm actually taking a course at the local community college in Chicago. And this is because, again, this goes back to the sports work ethic of what are my deficiencies? What do I need to get better at? So I'm like, all right, look at my portfolio. Maybe the reason I didn't get into grad school is because my models weren't good or because my portfolio wasn't as good. Not thinking it's because of my GPA. Like I didn't know at that point. So I signed up for one credit course at Triton Community College. I have my degree in hand already. I'm with a bunch of high school kids and first year students who don't know what they want to do. And they're all like, why are you here? Like, you already have a degree. But in my head, I'm like, I see a deficiency. I need to get better at it. Like, I don't have a big enough ego to think I'm above this. This is what I got to do. This is what I have to do. So that's what I did. So like, I literally spent that time there with a bunch of 17, 18 year olds, even though I've already graduated to retake my freshman year courses so that I can get better at them, even though like I didn't need to. Wait, I know you're there because you don't have a big ego and you're you're polishing your game. But for those 17, 18 year olds to see you being so dedicated, already with a degree, polishing your game, that's a really strong vision to behold. I've never thought of it that way, but I see what you mean. I just feel like you probably impacted a lot of those lives just by being there doing what you needed to do for yourself. I thought it just as I got to go do this. I got to get it done. And when I tell some of my students that I'm like, do you really care about it? If you really care about it, then you'll sacrifice certain things. And they're like, what do you sacrifice? Like, there's a lot of stuff that you don't know about me. Like, you see a lot of the stuff today, but it was not this easy to make it. And then when I came back from Cape Town, I applied for all of my grad school again. I'm like, all right, this reinvigorated me. I'm super excited about this. This is amazing. I'm going to go do this again. And now I can talk about what happened because going through therapy, I know how to have conversations and things about it. Like it's part of life. It's happened. I continue to understand that these things happen to people. Are we glossing over Cape Town? I'm in Cape Town for th three and a half, four months. I get there and in the first week, I want to come back. Like I'm, I'm like, mom, I want to come home. Because I always tell my mom these things. And my dad's like, dude, I just pay for the stuff. Your mom makes it, <laughs> makes the decisions. <laughs> so I knew not to ask him. My dad would just say, ask your mom. So I just say, Ma, can I come home? And she's like, how much longer do you have? Like three and a half months. She's like, oh, then you'll be there for three and a half months. I'm like, why? And she's like, one, because I paid for it already. It's like, and two, because it'll get you out of your comfort zone. Like, you need this. I like your mom. Oh, she's intense. Like, she's the sweetest thing ever, but like, she's intense. She, she's like, no, you'll be fine. And I told her the first day, I said, Ma, I feel like I'm the only black person in South Africa. And she's like, what are you talking about? There's black people there. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, but I'm American. So it's not the same. I'm like, everybody looks at me like I have a, like a horn in the front of my head. Like nobody treats me like I'm from the diaspora. Everybody treats me like I'm an American. And so it's weird. Like it's extremely isolating because like I don't speak Kosa. I don't speak Afrikaans. I'm just a regular old American here. And that had its own sort of rewards. And then everybody rolled out the red carpet, assuming I was going to spend a lot of money because like, hey, this is a tourist. They clearly have some sort of financial capital. They'll buy things. So in that regard, it was nice. 
But otherwise, I just, it was just I felt alone for a very large amount of the time that I was there. But then I started meeting other people in the internship program that were in different disciplines, but they were still there. And that's where I began to build community. And through that, it made things a lot better. And after that, I was like, Ma, I never want to come back. And she was like, OK, well, I'm paying for this. So you have to come back. <laughs> so that did that happen. And I, and I worked at this uh, architecture office called Sean J. McKay Architects. And it was in Ronda Bosch, which is a suburb of Cape Town. And we did a lot of work in the townships of Kailisha. And when we were out there doing that work, that's when I learned about community-oriented design because I never learned about it in undergrad. And so that's where literally my trajectory of work started. It was in 2009 when I was in Cape Town. Well, I'm glad we backed up and talked about Cape Town because that's a pivotal moment. And it did get you out of your comfort zone, even just to be in a place where you feel so othered and so isolated. I'm sure it perks up a different kind of survival skills. Oh, absolutely. So, okay, so those four months sound like they were really formative in terms of shaping you and your, not just your career trajectory, but your resilience. So then you come back and is now do we go to grad school? Yeah. So I come <laughs> back, I come back 2009. I missed the first cycle. So grad school starts 2010. So I have to work for a year. And so I've always had a very strong work ethic. Yeah, I didn't have to work. My parents would have been cool with me just being home and just, they just missed me. They were happy I was there, but I was like, nah, I can't just sit around and do nothing. Like I'll get bored. And Nike in Chicago had a job opening and the job opening was for a visual representative or something like that. And the visuals are basically interior designers. Oh, and was, okay. And I was like, oh, architecture thing here. Merchandising the, sto- the retail outlets and stuff? Exactly. Okay. I'm like, cool. This is basic interior design. This is architecture. I can get this job. So I'll apply for it. I get the job. I spent a year working at the Nike store downtown Chicago. And then I'm applying to grad schools again. So I apply to six. I'm talking about what happens. I'm like, hey, if you get me, you're getting an amazing student. I just got back from my first internship in Cape Town. Just take a chance on me. Trust me, everything's going to be good. Three out of the six schools immediately rejected me. One of those schools was the University of Illinois, Urbana Champaign. I'm like, how do you reject me? Like, you knew what happened. They rejected me. And then two other schools put me on wait list. The third school was like, hey, come for an interview. So that third school was Woodbury University. And they're like, if you can come out for an interview, we can talk and this might help your candidacy. And again, so I, mom, dad, you just put me on a plane to send me to California. And again, when I say these things out loud, I recognize how hard it is for the average student to be able to just tell their parents to just do this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm hearing it too. Yeah. I also sense your gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. Put me on the plane. I go there and I meet with Barbara Bester. <gasps> mm-hmm. So I meet with Barbara Bester. Barbara is the director of the grad program at the time. And so Barbara's sitting there with Norman Millar, who unfortunately passed away to cancer a few years ago. And she says to me, hey, what happened in this little time here? She's going to my transcripts. And she's like, everything else seems really good, but something's not right about this little spell. And I'm like, oh, you're the first person to ask me this. I was like, that's when my sister died. And she goes, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, my sister died from cancer. Like, and then one of my best friends was murdered and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I didn't care. My grades sucked. And she goes, oh, okay, this makes sense. You're in. And I was like, wait, what? She was like, yeah, you're in. She's like, clearly you're a really bright student. You just had some unfortunate circumstances. So you're in. Isn't that amazing when a human just intervenes with the system and like absolutely leads with empathy? Absolutely. Jesus. Yeah. So I told her, I said, look, you will not regret this. Like, just trust me. You will get the best student you've ever had. And then the other two schools, one of them, it's like, you didn't make it off the wait list. And then the other one was like, hey, if you come here for a talk to talk with us, 
This might help your candidacy. So I drive all the way there. It's a five hour drive. And I get there. The person who originally wrote me didn't even meet with me. They put me off to somebody else. And I was like, this was a colossal waste of my time. And so it ended up being Woodbury. And then when I got there, I won every single award that the school had. Thesis, highest GPA, everything. I was like, I told you, you were getting a good student. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So you won every award. So clearly they don't regret letting you in. I want to make sure we talk about the thesis prize because, first of all, it sounds like an amazing project. And I, so I'd love to hear about that. But also, I feel like so often, like the energy you put into your thesis work is something that is the kernel of what will continue to grow and inform your trajectory. It's almost like going back to look at how the seed got germinated. So tell me about the thesis work and winning the prize. So my thesis advisor is Jennifer Bonner of Mall. They got very lucky. I had a bunch of rock stars that were teaching me at the time. So I got very, very lucky in all of my professors. And so at the time, I just wanted to do some hip hop and architecture stuff. I just want to do something really cool and be done with it. And I had a professor who just made a comment that race and architecture have nothing to do with each other. Oh, fuck that. Yeah. And so everything about me is pushing back against what I feel like unjust circumstances. I was like, all right, time to shift the project. I'm going to just do this instead and come up with this project around public housing and social and programmatic resources that are typically not afforded to people of color. And this idea of nimbyism, of absolutely you can do this, just not in my neighborhood. And so I did this very speculative proposal and I'm not having good pinups and reviews with the juries because they're like, this is racist, et cetera. I'm just like, one, I'm black. I can't be racist. Like I don't have institutional power to inflict any type of unfortunate circumstances on you. Like I can be prejudiced. I can be a bigot. I'm like, but I can't be racist just by definition. And so these things just aren't going well. And the whole time, Jennifer's like, Jermaine, if you're not pissing people off, you're not doing your project correctly. 
And they fly in this this guy from Brazil for our mid review. I'll never forget it because I'm struggling so bad with the project. I don't know what to do. I wrote an email to Milton Curry. He was teaching at University of Michigan at the time. Didn't know me from a doorknob. I was like, hey, I'm doing this project. I don't know anybody that's black that's an architect because I still don't have a professor yet that is black. And so I write to him and he's like, you know what? This is too much for an email. Call me. And I'm just like, wow. So I have a full conversation with him about the stuff. And then same thing with Craig Wilkins because he's also at Michigan. So I write him and he called me. So I talked to him as well. And this is why I like to this day, I'll, anytime a student writes me, I write back because I was that student. And so all that stuff works out. And the guy shows me this project called The Robots of Brixton. And everything just clicked in my head at that moment. This is the guy from Brazil. And I take off. I do the thesis proposal. I make this huge model. I make the drawings. And I made a newspaper. And the newspaper, I think, is what won me the prize because I wrote every single article. And it was based off comments I got during my reviews where I was sort of like cheeky poking fun at the jurors of saying, this is like not in my backyard, full article about housing and development. That would cost too much, full article about economy. And then I had this little article called A Conversation with the Architect of me saying, you guys clearly want to give me the crit that I want. I'll just interview myself. And so there's a whole like fake interview I did with the architect of myself. And I gave that newspaper to all the jurors. Like there's pictures on Woodbury's page still <laughs> of like Barbara sitting there with the newspaper in her hand as she's like reading the thing. And then I won the thesis prize and the professor that said race and architecture don't match pulled me to the side and said, hey, you have something here. This might be the start of your career. So even they realized like sort of the error and sort of potential. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's so much that I love about this. I'll just say, first of all, like your particular style of rebellion is so creative and awesome because thank you. you were angry, clearly, and you were you were needing to piss them off and prove them wrong. But you did so in such a way that actually pointed out all of the absurdities and incongruencies and hypocrisies. And you also gave yourself a voice by interviewing yourself and getting to say what you wanted to say. And by putting it in the printed format, the newspaper, you allowed everybody to digest it and not have to defend themselves in the moment so mm. they could actually come back to you and say, you know what? you're right, I was wrong. Everything about that feels to me like somebody who understands the dynamics and how to get through in a really creative and productive way that doesn't compromise your voice or your values. So I put myself on a schedule, and this goes back to the basketball thing. I would tell myself from 9 a.m. until 12 a.m., I would work in the studio every single day because in my thesis semester, I only had one class, and that was my thesis studio. So I was like, I'll spend every single day during this time so I can still go to bed at a reasonable time, get some sleep. But the last two hours of the day, I would just write these articles. And they started as frustration. It was just like, I got to get these thoughts out of my head. And then this would go back to basketball stuff because if my coach got mad at me, like I couldn't curse back at my coach because then I'm not going to play. So I had to learn how to like channel all the anger I would get from whatever things he might say. And I'm like, you're not right, man. Like that wasn't my defensive assignment. He messed that up. Why are you yelling at me? But I can't say that because if I say that I'm on the bench, I can't do it. So I had to find other ways to do it. And so I would circumvent it by whatever. And the game's over. He'd be like, I knew you weren't the one that was the problem, but I know I can yell at you and it's okay. I can't yell at him. I'm just like, whatever, man. So just, we'll just go on and do whatever and go that way. So this is sportsmanship. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to fast forward here a little bit. We've covered your formative years in detail, but your career is also incredibly exciting. And I sort of ran through some of your accomplishments in the intro so the audience is familiar with what a big deal you are. <laughs> um, 
I would love for you to take us through your career trajectory, stop on some of the highlights and kind of illustrate your creative process along the way. As I was doing research, some of the projects that really stood out to me are obviously the founding of your own studio, but Sacred Stoops and obviously the sixth column order and the whole Rome Prize deal. So I finished the thesis. Well, I'm not totally finished. It's maybe a couple weeks before the semester is over. And my professor, Jennifer Bonner, she's like, hey, I need to have a meeting with you. And then my secondary advisor was a gentleman named Christian Stainer. Christian is like one of the smartest people I ever met. He was our theory professor. And they were like, we've been teaming up on proposals. We keep losing. But we made it to the second round of this one in this small city called Opalaka in South Florida. And we'd love for you to be on our team. And I was like, well, I'm not done with the semester yet, but sure. They're like, we'd also like you to pitch the project. I'm like, wait, what? They're like, yeah, you're really good at talking. And so it's like, we think we lose because we're not good at presenting. So we're thinking maybe you can come up with the stuff that we should say. And then we have a better chance of doing it. And so we talk about the work and they're like, cool, we'll do it. We fly to Miami on the plane. I come up with the full pitch and I'm like, I need to live there because people aren't going to believe you if you don't have like a foot in the community. And so we do the pitch. And at the end of the pitch, I like drop the bombshell like, oh, yeah, and I'm going to move here. We can't do this work if somebody doesn't live here. We're not about just dropping off art and leaving. I'm going to be here. I'm going to live in the neighborhood. And we end up winning the proposal. And when we do that, we don't know we've won yet. So I go back to L.A. and I'm working in an architecture office, which is like a collaborative office with Francois Perrine, another one of my former professors who passed away unexpectedly. And then Catherine Garrison, who's an architect. And she actually used to work with Barbara and stuff. So it's like, like, again, weird sort of uh, connections. And I'm doing design installations with Francois. I'm doing capital A architecture with Catherine. And so I'm split back and forth between the two. And this literally is how like my practice, everybody calls my practice experimental. I'm like, it's really not. This is literally what I was doing when I was <laughs> just working between two offices. I just do it all in the house now, as opposed to between two people. And the first project we worked on for Francois was at the Richard Neutra house in Los Feliz. Spent the entire summer at the Neutra VDL house working with acclaimed visual artist Xavier Veillon, who has like a sculpture in front of MoMA. He has work in front of the Center Pompidou, who's like one of the most famous visual artists in the world. That was my boss for an entire summer. So it was like wow. insane that I got to work with a world class artist. It was like, it was amazing. And then, um, I did that. And then when that finished, we found out that we won the proposal in Miami. And so at this point, Francois is like, Hey, Jermaine, you should move to Paris and work in John Nouvelle's office. He's like, John Nouvelle is my good friend. I can get you a job there. You speak French. This can work. But then we find out we win. And I'm like, wait a minute. I got to choose between moving to Miami. Or moving to Paris. And my parents are like, obviously you're going to pick Paris, right? Like we didn't put you in these programs for all this time for nothing. We'll see you when you come back. And I choose Miami. And they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, if I go there, I'm working for him. I might never get my name on anything. If I take this job, I'm betting on myself. And this is our project. And so if it works, this can be start of something great. If it doesn't work, at least I bet on myself and I took a chance. And so that's how I ended up in South Florida. And then everything took off. Yeah, there. like everything a rocket. Yeah, everything <laughs> took off from there. And you're still in Miami, so that was a good mm -hmm. choice to move there. I love that this story starts with you taking a bet on yourself. I just want to underscore that because anybody who's listening to this, who might be a young creative, I really feel like that's an important decision you made. You invested in yourself and you believed in your creativity, and then you put the energy and effort into it that it required. Okay, so talk to me about how it takes off. 
So I moved to Opalaka, full name, Opatisha Wakalaka, Florida. So we're, it's a real, real place. It's a seminal name, but it's in Northwest Miami-Dade. Historically black neighborhood, largest collection of more survival architecture, Western Hemisphere. So I moved there. We're doing work. And after the first year, Jennifer and Christian leave the project. And they leave the project because there's a bunch of underhanded things happening behind the scenes that just weren't cool that was happening. It was like, yo, we can't keep investing resources into this. We have to depart the project. Meanwhile, I moved there. So I'm like, I can't just leave. Like, I'm here. People in the neighborhood know me now. Like, I've met all these people. I've made community with them. And so I stayed. And so when I stayed a year later, we got a huge grant. And so the CEO was like, hey, you stuck around. You still want to make these projects happen? I'm like, hell yeah. And so at this point, we're starting and I get nominated for a Curb Young Gun Award. So curb.com, architecture, resource, whatever. And it was people that were under 30 that were doing non-conventional work in the built environment. They submitted my work that was happening in Opalaka and I win. And so I'm one of the young guns in the class of 2015. And they like do a full photo spread and stuff. And it's like, look at this kid who's under 30 doing all this work in this neighborhood, trying to redevelop without gentrification. And so that's when my name gets on the radar. And so it's like, all right, so I'm, I'm here. I'm 29. I'm doing this stuff way faster than we typically do. And then at this point, people are starting to recurve. They're seeing my name. They're writing me for interviews and things. And I'm just ignoring all of it. I'm like, I'm just trying to get this work done. I'm not actually trying to capitalize on any of this. And then we get a new dean at the University of Miami. Dean Rudolph L. Corey. And you've begun teaching there already. Yeah, I started teaching my first year there in Miami. And this is under Liz Peters-Iberg. So she hires me and then new dean comes in and he's like, hey, I see a lot of potential. I'm a nominator for MoMA PS1. Would you like to be nominated for MoMA PS1? I'm like, absolutely. Like That's something people dream about. But I don't get it. I lose. I'm not even a finalist for it. That's a nice vote of confidence from the new dean. Absolutely. And it's a biannual thing. So he gets another one two years later. And he's like, you want to be submitted again? I'm like, absolutely. So now at this point, I'm a full-time professor. It's 2016. The Opalaka stuff has been built. Things are all happening. I decide I got to go out on my own now. I've been here for four years. I need to see what it's like being by myself. I'll figure this out. So I do it and I write the Sacred Stoops proposal to the Grand Foundation, which is I know porches. I know the South. I know what it means to be in this space. I don't know if you all care about this, but this is what I know. So I'm going to just write this. And if I get it, I get it. And if I don't, maybe it's just not meant for me to do this whole research thing because my priorities aren't the same as your priorities. But I get it. And the moment I get it, four emails come in in less than 48 hours. One from the Swiss Institute in New York, one from Princeton to do a lecture, one from the New York Times to send a reporter to follow me around. And I forget where the fourth one from. I was like, I haven't even done anything yet. I just like I just started the research now. And the New York Times was like, yeah, but we want to send somebody with you. They sent a reporter with me to go around Detroit looking at porches and talking to people and interviewing and stuff. I was born and raised in Ypsilanti. So Detroit is my. uh... Yeah, yeah. That's that's (laughs) where I've got a family in Detroit. So that's why I've been. Yeah. So I love love that area. I miss it so much. So we did a whole thing. It was a whole piece they did. They followed me around and stuff. And then there's a gentleman who runs the Humanities and Place Department at the Mellon Foundation named Justin Garrett Moore. And Justin had been following my work since the early Curb article, and I never knew it. And when he was following it, he invited me to come do a talk at this Spaces and Places conference, an unofficial planning conference that was always attached to the planning conference to get more diverse people into the space. And he's like, yo, I love the work you do. It's like, it's super grassroots. It's actually community focused. And I'm just like, how do you know me? And he's like, I saw the Curb Young Gun article. I've been following you ever since. I was like, wait, really? 
He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm always intrigued by people who are actually out doing the work and not just talking about it theoretically. He's like, you're out doing it. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. He's like, I kind of just left it at that. And the next thing I know, I get the email from MoMA saying, we're doing the first ever all black architecture exhibition. We would love for you to be a part of it. And so I asked the leadership, I said, how did y'all find me? Because other people that I'm like, I know how you find other people. Like, these are all huge names. Like, I'm the youngest here. I'm probably the least known out of all these people. They all have relationships. Nobody knows me. How did you find me? And they're like, oh, you applied to Moma PS1 a couple of years ago. I was like, wait, what? They're like, yeah, we loved your proposal. We just didn't think it matched for PS1. So we just put your portfolio to the side. I was like, hold on, wait a minute. They're like, yeah. It was like your porch one, right? And I was like, wow. I thought that was just an exercise in futility. But actually, they held on to it. And that's how I got put in. That's why I tell all my students to always submit to everything because people do, it does register on people's brains and they remember you. So that's how MoMA happens. Not only is the exhibition a huge deal and it's the first of its kind for MoMA, yep. but you're a founding member of the Black Reconstruction Collective that was founded from the other participants in that exhibition. So that sounds like a lot of energy coalesced to make something bigger. The, the bigger issue for us was we're not special, us 10. Like there's so many other black designers and architects. We were just the ones that were chosen. So how do we make sure that those people understand that it's not like we're not better than anybody. We're not special. So how can we make the platform even bigger? And that's why we started the BRC to sort of do that. And we've been doing that for two years now and fulfilling that promise. I think that the biggest thing was because I was so young compared to my the people in the show, I was just like, man, I have to deliver. I was like, I'm afraid that yeah, I was if I'm going to do you this. how you're handling the pressure. Oh, man, it was it was a lot because I, I mean, I came out the gate super bold. I told the curatorial team I'm not making a single architectural drawing. They're like, you know, there's an architecture show, right? I was like, I do not doing it, though. <laughs> and they're like, why? I'm like, because this is still a museum and I want everybody to engage with it. And everybody doesn't know how to read it, a plan. So I'm not so like I'm not going to do that. I'm like, I'd rather just build something and do some collages and be done with it. And they were like, all right, Jermaine, whatever. And then I did it and they were like, okay, so we're going to use these as all of our press images. And so it became like all, <laughs> it became all the press stuff. And so it was crazy when I went to MoMA and like you see Basquiat fourth floor, you see Pope L fifth floor, and then you see my image that's right Jermaine there. Jermaine Barnes. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow, like that's, that's insane. Wow. And, and I guess I nailed it because then everybody started coming and asking for follow-ups and things. And then Rome Prize happens after that. This is like 2021. This is an incredible year. And I just want to tell people the name of that work was A Spectrum of Blackness. And I want to say that so they can Google it properly. You also won the Harvard GSD Wheelwright Prize that year, right? <laughs> it was, uh, it was. Hot it damn, was, Jermaine. <laughs> some, some might say I peaked. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, you're just getting started. The Rome Prize, how did that hit when you won that? Because that is a huge deal. And congratulations. I'm Thank you. I'll be totally honest, honest with you. So this is COVID times is happening. And I'm a bit of a loner in that I enjoy just being by myself. And some of that goes to me having a huge family and rarely getting time to myself. So I cherish it when I do. And so in my mind, I was like, wow, this is a chance for me to just buckle down. And then just get all the work done that I've been trying to get done and just focus. Like, cool, this is my off-season training. I'm going to get everything out. And I get an email from the American Academy in Rome saying, you've been nominated as someone who will be right for this fellowship. You should apply. And I'm like, I don't do anything around classical architecture. Like, who would, who would put me up for this? Like, it doesn't make any sense. 
And I think somebody was just saying, here's some black architects. You guys should go ahead and put his name on the list. And so I do it. I'm just like, I don't even know what to propose. But then I think back to my porch research and I think back to a conversation I had with a colleague who said that the Romans had porches first, but they were porticos. And I'm like, oh, I can do a contested history of porches and porticos. And that's what I can put forth in my proposal sort of as a lens into North African or diasporic contributions to classical architecture. Yeah. Fascinating. And so I put all this together as a proposal. And at the end, my stupid ass says, I'm going to design a new column order. Don't know why I said that. But again, sometimes I say things and just be like, I'll figure it out later. And so, so I write it in there. And when this happens, I'm like, all right, I think this is a really good proposal. I'm going to also apply to the GSD Wheelwright Prize because they're due around the same time. I'm like, you know what? Oh, and Creative Capital is also due around the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so it just so happened they're all due. I'm like, one of these people going to give me money. I'm like, this is a good proposal. One of the three should give me money because this isn't bad. And so I send it to all three. And I get letters back from all three. And Rome Prize is like, you have an interview on this date. GSD says, you're a finalist. You have an interview on this date. Creative Capital just says, you're, you've won. And I'm just like, okay, so I got one. If the other two don't go well, like, I'm good. I still got the money from Creative Capital. I can make this happen. I do the Rome Prize interview. True story, Amy. I say to, they say to me, what would this do for your career? And how would you respond if you win the Rome Prize? And I go, oh, I'll probably just curse a lot. And they're like, huh? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'll get a phone call probably like 4 p.m. Because the guy who was doing all the organizing would always call at 4 o'clock for some reason. I was like, you'll probably, like, probably call at 4 o'clock. I'll probably curse and yell and be like, thank you. And then be on the first plane to Italy. And they all laughed. And they were like, OK, end of the call. That was a Wednesday. The very next day, that Thursday, I get a call at 4 o'clock. And it's like, Jermaine, we would like to offer you the Rome Prize. <laughs> <laughs> and so I laugh and I, and I start cursing. And I say yes. And then he goes, the jury made sure I called you at four o'clock. I was like, like, thanks. I was like, that was a great touch. And so I finished that. And so now I'm like, man, I'm two for three. I'm like, there's no way in hell I'll get the the GSD Wheelwright Prize too. I'm like, but two out of three is insane. Nobody ever wins these awards. So you might win one. I've gotten them all already. So cool. I don't need Wheelwright. If I get it, I get it. I do the talk. And when the talk is over and this goes against some of the basketball stuff, I can read energies. And I'm like, I think I just won the Wheelwright Prize. Like the moment the interview is over, I'm like, I think I just won. I'm like, I have no idea who else they've picked, but I don't think it went as well as mine just went. Because I have this thing where I know if people start projecting what I can do without me saying anything. And I'm like, oh, I got it then. Like, because you already figured out how to fit me in here. Because I didn't say any of that. You came up with that. So I'm like, I'm good. So I'm like, I've won this. And then like a week later, I get a phone call from Sarah Whiting. She's the dean at the GSD. And she's like, hi, Jermaine. I'm like, hey. She's like, so you know what this call is about? I'm like, I won. She's like, <laughs> you won. And at this point, I'm like, what the hell? I got Rome Prize. I got GSD. I got this. I got this. Like, And then I end up getting U.S. Artist Award and the Architecture League Prize of New York. I swept. I literally can't win anything else but a Pritzker and a, and a Genius Award. That's literally all that's left. Well, now you just put that in the universe. Wonder oh, I'm, when, are, what I'm working towards it. Okay, so how does this not fuck with your head? How do you it does. not get... So what do you do about that? It does. I play a lot of basketball, Amy. All right. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I play a lot of fucking basketball. Like, that is how I do it. And then all these things are happening, and I have to deliver. But this, again, it goes back to my sports mind of, this is the pressure. If you're Michael Jordan, if you're LeBron James, if you're these people who want to be the best, you have to accept the pressure. You can't run from it. You can't say... 
I don't put me in the moments that put all the eyes on me. And so like MoMA was like my first chance in the all-star game. And I'm like, all right, I held my own with the other greats. And then Rome Prize, American Academy was my second opportunity. He's like, all right, I've nailed this. And then I get the email from Leslie Loco to be in the 2023 Venice Biennale. I'm like, wait a minute, wait, what? And it's like, yeah. And I get this email when I'm in Sicily doing my research for the stuff for the Rome Prize. And I'm like, all right, this is insane. Like, I'm not a part of the American Pavilion. I'm literally getting an invitation from Leslie herself in Arsenale. That's the NBA Finals. So I'm like, all right, more pressure. Let's go. Okay. So that's coming up, right? That's still. That is in a month. How are you doing? <laughs> are you- uh, we're done with everything except for a few artifacts that I'll be getting, taking on a plane with me. I'm not sure if you saw the, the, the list and everything about where people are placed, but they got me in the first damn room. So imagine my young ass in there with titans of architecture around the globe. And the first thing they see is me. That's fun. That is. So you know what happens to rock stars when they get famous too fast? Yeah, it doesn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to happen to you? It doesn't go well. So Basketball's yeah. your only mechanism of keeping yourself in check? <laughs> yeah, bas- basketball, I watch it, I play it, I listen to podcasts. Some people say I probably absorb too much of it. But the biggest thing, like I said early in the call, there's the people who touch the stove and those that listen. So people tell me stuff, I listen. So I've been able to dodge a lot of the normal pitfalls that have happened. And then I always uh, tell people, like, I'm not famous. I'm like, architecture famous doesn't count. And they're, like, <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, it doesn't matter that, like, this one profession knows who I am. Like, the rest of the world has no clue. But you can't tell that to my niece. My niece swears I'm, I'm famous. I'm like, I'm, I'm really not, baby girl. But <laughs> it's okay. I'm excited that your work is being celebrated in all of these different venues. Because I, I do think what you're doing is important and powerful and compelling, I want to say you're like expanding the canon. You're sort of changing the canon. You're you're inviting everybody to approach architecture in the built world, to question their own perspective and to approach it from a new perspective. And you're almost writing the recipe for that so that other people can do it as well. You're not claiming ownership necessarily as much as you are just filtering it through your own creative process and generating really compelling artifacts and and projects and installation art and built projects from that. I'm very excited that you are having an impact on the built world. And I can't wait to see how this progresses throughout your career. I hope you never lose your passion. So I want to ask before we get off the phone, in terms of your yourself, your personal life, Obviously, you're enjoying your career and you're playing basketball. Sounds like you've got a lot of good people in your support network. Absolutely. But in terms of crafting your own beautiful life and impactful legacy, where and what do you need to put more energy into in the future? Like what needs filling out and what needs pruning back? That is a a great question and probably a great way to cap off the call. I recently started therapy again, not because anything bad is happening, just but because it's like, there's a lot of shit going on in my life. And so I'm just trying to figure out how to manage things and manage relationships. Like I'm a tenured professor, which is insane for a 37 year old to say out loud. I did it in two and a half years. Like I was like, nope, I'm not waiting. I'm just go up now. I'm the director of our graduate program. So I like one of the few black directors of the school of architecture in the country. So I was like, I have a lot of things that are going on. I need to figure out how to manage this stuff. And so I started seeing a therapist a few months ago. A lot of it is about me being present in relationships. 
because oftentimes I think me being physically there is me being present, but it's not. And so because I had this insatiable desire to be the best in architecture, I've missed a lot of things. And so like I've missed some of my niece's birthdays. I've missed some of my parents' birthdays or parties or gatherings because everybody lives in Chicago but me. And so I have to learn like what are my priorities? What are the things that matters? And then recently my grandmother has been a bit sick. And so we all flew home to go see her. And it was so many people that were there. And I just didn't realize how many people she had touched. And the whole time I'm sitting, I just put things in perspective. I'm like, if I don't create or carve out time for this part of my life, then like, who am I doing this for? Like, what is all the success for? And so I've been able to reorient a lot of those priorities again by the therapist has been very helpful in that regard. Like, and I think about people just assume therapy means like there's a crisis. I'm like, no, like I have nothing to complain about. My life is a breeze. It's an oil change. It's tune-up. Yeah. My life is an absolute breeze. I just do this because I think it's good for maintenance. And so he's been trying to help me to make sure that people feel valued um, and so that I'm able to see the value in, in plutonic relationships with romantic relationships and be able to re reprioritize things. And so I've been trying to do better at that lately to make room for people and make room outside of, you know, I got this project that's coming up or I got to do this or my momentum is still going. I don't want to lose that momentum and fall out of the public eye and keep taking on every opportunity because sometimes every opportunity isn't the right opportunity. And so hopefully that continues, but I'm trying to do better. I do want to say that you were very present during this interview, and I really appreciate you sharing your your whole story with me and our listeners. And I just hope I get a chance to meet you in person one day because this was awesome. Likewise, this is very fun. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Jermaine, including images of him and his work, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcast.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows.